Welcome to the latest DE download on 2LO Rebooted, where we tell the stories of BBC design and engineering. Today, we talk about artificial intelligence and BBC things. I'm Bill Thompson. December saw the last in the 2017 series of Blue Room Presents Talks on AI. Covering AI myths and realities, it featured Matthew Postgate in conversation with one of the world's leading AI experts, Neil Lawrence, who is Professor of Computational Biology and Machine Learning at Sheffield University and a Director of Machine Learning at Amazon, where he leads Amazon Research Cambridge. It was clear from the event that Matthew is deeply engaged in thinking about AI and what it means for the BBC. So after he's had the Christmas break to reflect on it, I asked him to tell us what he took from the conversation. There's no doubt that, that Neil is, is one of the leading practitioners in a field of, of AI and machine learning and of a, a set of contemporaries that are all UK-based as well, which is really exciting. The Blue Room team, uh, Ali and, and, and the gang, have done a great job of programming a series of events across the year. I've been able to get to some of them. I've caught up with a lot of them on the videos that they've also produced. Um, but that end-of-year one, to, to kind of get some of Neil's stature and to have the opportunity to talk to him directly was just too good to pass up. You really did seem to be enjoying yourself, I have to say. It wasn't like it was a strain. You, you were clearly into the conversation. Well, I mean, it's a fascinating topic. It's one that's incredibly relevant to what we're doing at the BBC, as we all know. But it's also incredibly relevant to, to what's going on in, in society, and in, in not just in the UK, but globally. So, you know, I mean, I think for those of us who are interested in how technology impacts society and how society impacts technology, the debates around AI and machine learning are some of the absolutely key questions that we're facing at the moment. And you say around AI and machine learning. And a big part of the conversation is trying to tease those two things apart. What's your understanding of the distinction between what we call AI, artificial intelligence, what we call machine learning? Is it a useful one? I think it's one that often gets clouded. I think it's like many of these um, areas that are quite technical or reasonably technical and, and, and often trying to make those topics approachable for uh, non-specialist audiences. We, we You get a kind of a, a, a bit of... You know, creative license that, that, that leads to a little bit of imprecision. In my opinion, in my, my definition, you can almost see those terms as part of a pyramid. At the bottom, you've got machine learning, which is really a computing technique. Uh, it's about neural nets. It's about how using large-scale data, data sets and large-scale compute facilities to crunch through data and derive analysis. And then I think on top of that, you've got applied AI, which is typically using those machine learning techniques within the context of a specific problem domain. And then on top of that, at the top of the pyramid, is an idea about general purpose AI, which is using those foundational building blocks, but rather than using a constrained problem set where you've got some parameters that are fixed, instead you're asking computers to to solve problems without those constraints, which is obviously much harder. And the reality is that much of the activity that can be labelled AI today is actually machine learning. It's a form of computing. There is some quite exciting stuff going on in various vertical applied AI um, constructs, so, so perhaps some problems in healthcare, obviously the, 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 the problem set around autonomous cars and the, those kind of areas. The work in general purpose AI is, is really very much an academic pursuit at the moment. It's not to say it's not going to happen, it's not to say it's incredibly profound and very interesting, but um, the, the three terms often get used interchangeably, which I think is, as I say, imprecise and not necessarily helpful for understanding what, what's really going on. And it's good to hear that, that, that clarity of explanation because I think it really matters to us that we are quite clear about it, not just in our journalism, but in our practice. 
Do you think that there'll be a breakthrough in strong AI? Do you see one coming or do you think it's still some way off? I mean, I, I think we've had the opportunity this year, both within the BBC through the Blue Room initiatives, but also actually on our output with interviews with Demis and, and, and others, to to sort of ask the experts about whether or not general purpose AI is going to have a breakthrough this year. Most of the people who are actually involved in the field would still put that decades away. That doesn't mean to say we shouldn't be thinking about it, so especially in, term, in the context of the BBC's output, because the impact for humankind are sort of human scale, you know, kind of impact. So, so we need to have a, a, a kind of debate about those issues. But that isn't when we're, we're not in our sort of day to day work within um, BBC design engineering, sort of understanding how general purpose AI is going to change what we're going to do next next quarter. So I, I think that there are likely to be breakthroughs. I don't think they're, they're imminent. Um, but of course, we need to keep an eye on them because if there are breakthroughs in general purpose AI, we all need to know about it. In terms of machine learning and applied AI, I think that that is where some of the most interesting work is going on. And I also think that the other sort of thing we haven't touched on yet is how machine learning and applied AI are really at the moment about augmenting human capability. When when these terms are used imprecisely, you get sucked into a discussion about general purpose AI, you very quickly get into the idea of replacing humans yeah. in a creative process or in a kind of service process or whatever it is. As I say, that is is, is a number of years, perhaps decades away from being a kind of uh, an immediate issue. Um, however, using machine learning within applied AI context to augment human activities, massively accelerating them. Um, so the cl classic example is perhaps in the diagnosis of some certain diseases. You know, if you've got um, great image recognition and you're a, a, a physician who's trying to identify potentially um, cancerous skin growths, then you can massively augment that physician's either accuracy or the the volume of, of diagnosis that, that they can they can achieve through the use of machine learning and applied AI techniques. And that's where I think for society some of the most interesting things are. I was thinking about it over the holidays, it's almost the difference between you know, who, what do we think is going to have the biggest impact in society first? Is it autonomous vehicles? Actually, it's a very difficult problem to solve that when you try and integrate autonomous vehicles into streets. Or how about remote controlled vehicles? How about you know lorries being um, driven by remote operatives uh, that don't have to. That can work in a shift pattern rather than having, you know, people having to drive lorries and then rest for seven hours in in between shifts. You know, those kind of techniques are going to actually have a bigger impact in the near term. So that's a really interesting example where you you leave the human in the loop, which was one of the things that Neil said in the conversation with you, and just try to add value to what they're doing. Are there any specific BBC examples that that come to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what we have to look at is is our production processes. And I think that we need to be um, brave and embrace the change that technology enables. And um, I'm not sure we've got a great track record in that, but I think we need to get better at it. But where are those examples? Actually, they could potentially exist across our whole our whole production process. So I, I think it's literally that comprehensive. So we don't have the time today for me to go through all the possible ones. But for example, three that, 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 that will come from the work that we have done. There's obviously the idea that you could use an AI-driven computer vision type system to allow perhaps one director to do vision mixing across uh, an event with several focuses of attention. So you know, perhaps you could have the, the AI 
coming up with a rough edit in near, in near real time and then having a live director being able to kind of really enhance the coverage of a music event or so perhaps the golf or something like that. That's one example. Um, in journalism, obviously something, Bill, you're, you're involved with, you know, I, I, I got asked whether or not AIs are going to replace journalists and my answer is absolutely not. But maybe it'll allow our journalists to do the kind of journalism that we really want to be focused on because some journalism is predictable, some of it is about, you know, announcements, budgets, company results, etc., etc. Now, an AI could conceivably do sentiment extraction to kind of give you the bare bones of an article and have a, a journalist spend relatively less time putting that out as a piece of informational journalism that we just need to kind of get out there perhaps freeing up journalism cycles to do investigative reporting, which is where I think the BBC can really add value in, in journalism space. And then even in the, the context of design and engineering, and we know that one of the kind of things we really need to get better at in the, in the coming year is how we use images in, in iPlayer. And certainly in those sort of televisual interfaces, we know that image, images and that kind of visual representation of our programming is much more effective in selection for younger audiences. So we, we've done a lot of work on getting great text descriptions of our programs, but guess what? People are only looking at the pictures. And so what can we do to use AI perhaps to give ourselves some very optimised imagery for our programmes, for different segments of our audience, and allow the people, the picture editors who are working on that, that part of our interface to be able to kind of process and select them much more quickly. Again, it's a problem where a machine learning-driven visual recognition algorithm can add value and essentially augment and accelerate what the human can do. And that then taps into what the audience platform is delivering in terms of personalization. So different audiences get different sets of images to help drive their program choices. Exactly. And it's, it's one of the areas where if you look at what we do in the BBC, it's a relatively small level of resource that we put onto that. If you look at what Netflix do, it's a relatively large level of resource. Now, they're spending that money for a reason. It's kind of working for them. So it's perhaps something we want to, we want to look at. I want to finish just by asking you about an issue which, which always comes up and which certainly came up in the conversation between you and Neil, which is about ethics and issues like algorithmic transparency and whether you see the BBC as having a role in this world about being you know, a gold standard, about doing things better and differently to try to establish that we need to be really careful about how we deploy these technologies and perhaps quite open about how we're deploying them. I absolutely think we should be central to that debate. I think that the BBC is different to some of the other large-scale digital players. And by the way, we are a large-scale digital digital player in that we our, our dominant business model is fund, funding through the licence fee. That doesn't mean to say our commercial revenues aren't very important, but it allows us to put user requirements and, and user the responsibility to the user very much at the centre of, of the services we provide, whereas fundamentally... You know, Facebook and Google and Amazon are there to optimise around the interests of their shareholders. I mean, that, that is fundamentally the, con the construct. There's nothing wrong with that. We offer an alternative. But it means that our approach to some of those questions of ethics in the way that we deploy AI services allow us to have um, a different perspective. And I think it's very important as we move into this next wave of the information age to have that plurality, to have those different points of view represented in the choices that people are able to make. So I think we need to do two things. We need to continue to shine a light on the issues and to shine a light on the issues from a perspective of the users, not just the, the, the shareholders. And that's what we're doing in the kind of the kind of talks that, we, uh, that Neil and I enjoyed at the beginning of, uh, sorry, the end of last year. We'll be doing more of those this year. But also as we deploy services that are AI driven, 
I don't know whether I'd call it a gold standard. What I would say is that I think we need to be providing those services that are very clearly with the user's interests at their heart to show a comparator to services that may start from a different perspective. So people then can understand the issues and understand what the trade-offs are and understand the, the, the choices that, that they're making. Actually, the more you talk to people who are active in the field, um, I think kind of comes out consistently, is that we need to get a, a change in the idea about data ownership. And that actually one of the ways to um, moderate the, 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 the bias towards shareholder interest in this space is to make data more portable. To, to, to give people true choice and to, ha to have like competition in the market for, for data services. And that's fundamentally about having not a zero-sum uh, approach to data ownership, either it's either the corporations or it's the individuals, hey, it's data, you know, it's control you know, C, control V. It's not, it's not that complex. But the idea that people could take, whether it's their browsing history or their family's photos or that what they've watched on iPlayer and then move them to another service is incredibly important in, in being able to kind of create an information age which has a balance between the interests of individuals and corporations and shareholders and the other stakeholders in, in, involved. And then those organisations that have earned people's trust will be able to use that data in ways that benefit them. Yeah, exactly, and I think you know that's that's how it should be. Those 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 organisations that, as you say, earned trust, um, should benefit from from you know the, the rise of these technologies and what people are able to do with them, and the, the people who betray that trust, you know, should should be less competitive. And I think that's where we're going. Although we're in the middle of quite a kind of interesting intellectual struggle, very different worldviews. You know, there's a very different worldview from the kind of dominant internet players and the European Union, for example, around this idea about data portability. I think it's clear where the BBC kind of comes down as say we, we it's very easy for us. These they're, they're very complicated, but really all you have to do is turn your badge over and, and see that audiences are at the heart of everything we do and start from there. And, and if you use that as your as your foundation, actually the right thing to do in what what are very complex um, scenarios often becomes very clear. Matthew Postgate there. Now we're going out and about with Prue Stubbs, who's made it her mission to find interesting people in DE and ask them what they do. She's been talking to software engineer Anna Smith. My name is Prue Stubbs, and for 2LO Rebooted, the podcast from BBC DE, I get to go around the BBC and talk to some really fantastic and interesting people. I have no idea what people in this department do, so I go around and I ask people. What do you do? Hi, my name's Anna and I'm a junior software engineer in the Connections team, which is part of uh, what is now Content Discovery Services. And the Connections team is responsible for looking after APIs that are used for discovering and maintaining BBC Things. So BBC Things will be of interest to BBC audiences, so it could be something from Bob Dylan to the election 2015 and we also make connections between these BBC things and BBC content via tagging tools and so we support a wide range of products through this including BBC News mobile app and the BBC sports website among others. I've heard it once called constellationing. Yeah it's been called a lot of things I think yeah. <laughs> How do you actually fit into DNA? 
Um, so our team, Connections, for is part of wider BBC platform or what is now content distribution services. Broadly speaking, most of the teams within content distribution services are operating similarly, kind of building connections across the BBC, largely internal, internal clients, but also some external clients as well. Typical day for us would be we. I think fairly standard across our department so we'd come in we'd have a stand-up we'd look at our ongoing tickets pick up new tickets we pair program on everything so we'd split into pairs discuss any problems we've had previously and forecast kind of what we're going to be spending our time on in any given day we'd pair on the ticket perhaps we'd break out for various meetings throughout the day but a standard day usually so when you're looking at something you have to do it with a partner? Usually when we're pairing, it tends to form so that you have a more junior person pairing with a more senior person, but that isn't always the case. And really, no matter your experience, your code is always improved when you're working with somebody else. It's just a second pair of eyes. And because we're continually, we, we do continuous deployment, so all the changes that we're making, we're pushing straight through to a live product. And so the more eyes you have on anything that you're changing, the better. And so it's kind of a necessary part of our process, really. Before you were here and being a junior software person, what kind of person were you? Before I was working here as a software engineer, I was actually working in criminal defence law. So a career changed into software engineering. Yeah, I'd graduated with a humanities degree, done a law conversion, gone into law and for various reasons started considering a career change. Came to software engineering through an organisation called Code First Girls, which offers free coding courses to female graduates and young professionals. Completed a coding course over the course of eight weeks, um, part-time with women from all sorts of different professional backgrounds. And really, really loved it. Was looking for ways in which I could continue to doing, keep doing something that I really enjoyed. Ultimately decided that I would give up the job that I was doing so that I could commit to that. I did a coding boot camp down in London, which is a 12-week intensive coding boot camp. I graduated from that applied for a job at the BBC and was very fortunate to be offered the job as a software engineer, my first software engineering role. What are the skills that your previous job share? In tech and in software engineering, maybe in the past too much emphasis has been given to the hard skills around kind of coding, coding skills and the use of technologies. But I think more so than ever before, companies and those hiring people are recognising that the soft skills are as important, if not more important, and that those people coming from another profession of, often have a lot of the qualities that you would look for in a software engineer and that can be hard to teach. You can skill someone up in their coding knowledge or in different languages, but it's hard to introduce kind of the more interpersonal skills to somebody that doesn't already possess them. And I think... It, from my previous role, I, th I think I had a lot of um, kind of emotional intelligence and uh, the ability to, to really analyse problems and to, uh, to get to the heart of the problem. And also to speak to people of different levels of seniority, which is something that you're asked to do quite a lot in an organisation as big as the BBC. That's what I find fascinating about Dini is there are a lot of people who come from completely different places, yeah. but there are really obvious transferable skills like you're saying like the emotional intelligence but the multitasking parts the yeah. working in a team parts the 
communication. Yeah, and I think people who are, are looking to career change often underestimate what it is that they have to offer. And, you know, it can be daunting, the prospect of moving from something that you, you have a certain level of competence in, you've had experience in and you're comfortable doing what you're doing to moving to something that has unfamiliarity um, to be starting from the bottom again can feel quite daunting but in reality you're not really starting from the bottom because you've already got that skill set it's just that you're diversifying and um, putting it to something new. If you could time travel and give yourself some advice what would you say? I think be less hard on myself because sometimes when you're quite an ambitious person and particularly when you're starting um, at the beginning of a journey you can focus too much on what's ahead um, and what it is that you want to achieve and forget to look back at how far you've come and recognise that you've already achieved so much. And I think that's not unusual. Most of us tend to adopt a very forward focus to our careers and fixate on what's ahead of us and forget to take time to reflect on where we've come from. So I think I'd tell myself to to recognise my own achievements and to yeah be less hard on myself, I think. So what are you passionate about? I'm passionate about using the knowledge and experience that I've grown through software engineering and coding to pay that forward to other groups, specifically those that are underrepresented in tech. So I mentioned before that I had my first exposure to coding through Code First Girls and I'm now an instructor at Code First Girls in Manchester, which is a really great position to be in. And I'm also an organiser behind Code Bar, which is an organisation that holds workshops for underrepresented tech minorities. And we try to facilitate a safe learning environment for people of all abilities to come in and receive kind of personalised coaching around whatever it is they happen to be working on at that time. And I also have set up a coding school for refugees in Manchester to serve the refugee and asylum seeker community across Greater Manchester. So we teach them how to code over the course of six months and it follows a model that we have in London and in Glasgow and at the completion of this course they're actually ready and able to apply for junior developer roles and we'll support them with entry into the profession. That was Anna Smith talking to two LOs, Prue Stubbs. Prue's also the Women in STEM coordinator so do check out their activities. You can find them on Yammer and Twitter and they also have their own YSTEM app in the BBC Essentials toolbox. And that's it for this DNA download from 2LA Rebooted. Do stay tuned for the next one, and if you've got a story you'd like to tell, please get in touch.